I made a very good dad joke the other day that I think you might appreciate. So I went to Slamfest in Slinger. Hell yeah, brother. With my buddy Nate and his family. And his sister got like this new purse backpack, like one of those small ass yeah. backpacks. Mm-hmm. And it had mushrooms on it. And she turned around. She's like, do you like my, you guys like my new uh, backpack? He's like, yeah, it's kind of small. It doesn't look like there's mushroom in there. <laughs> I thought it was one of my, my so better ones. Absurd. That is incredible. <laughs> she like looked at me for a second and was like, yeah, I know it's kind of small. And then she stopped. She's like, oh, that was good. Yeah. And then she looked like, oh, you're a really fun guy. <laughs> I, 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 oh, 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 Evan. Evan. <laughs> It's a, you've heard Battle of the Warring States. Get ready for Battle of the Warring Dads here. <laughs> the dad jokes continue. Mm-hmm. Which vassal state will win this week? Find out next time on Daddle State D. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a silly more show! More like the Gems of History podcast. What a my silly right? show we have! I love it. As we say, we are a loose format history podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, emphasis welcome. on the loose. <laughs> yeah. And not so much on the format. Lucy Goosey. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Gems of History, part yeah. two of the Sengoku Jidai. Yes, the Sengoku. Wow. Sengoku Jidai. I'm the Jidai. one that's supposed to get it wrong. Have you paid attention to the last 84 episodes? I Yeah, but yeah, every time you've told me that you wanted to do this topic, I called it like the, like the Hojoko Tandem bicycle (laughs) i I never got it right once until we started actually researching it's a very tricky phrase to say i was very close to texting you because i was like all right i know you've told me like 17 times so what is the topic called for this week oh i just had to google it yeah if we we started organizing ourselves a little more and got like a google calendar together for both of us to go off of and bonkers you you put the title name of the topic in there and that's that's what saved me and you literally just like like audibly gulp like, like oh oh boy <laughs> but here we are welcome back everybody i am jacob shop and i am joined by evan roosh as usual yes hello everyone uh you can find me at what on twitter <laughs> is this our new trend is doing all think, the plugs at the beginning i think it needs to be i think people will actually uh maybe follow us on all of our different social medias like twitter at gems underscore history please follow us we'll give you anything just start begging like a follow back uh you can find us on instagram at gems of history podcast and then on youtube and tiktok at gems of history yeah um gonna start some cool youtube content sometime soon if i don't give up halfway through yes (laughs) (laughs) depends how much work it is to video edit that is true but we're back we are back to continue the civil war with part two of maybe the longest civil war in human history not captain america civil war (laughs) that was a long movie (laughs) it was a good movie though oh it was probably one of the better if not the best Marvel movies, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, it's, it's up, there. up there. It is up there. I would say top three for sure. For sure. Loved Endgame. Thor Ragnarok. That's a good one. That's a good, like, is it? Yeah. easy one to throw on and just, like, have, even if you have it on in the background, you'll still laugh. I definitely need to check that one oh, out. Oh, you've never seen it? No, I'm so oh, behind. Man. I, honestly, Marvel is just getting to the point where they're, I, there's no way I can watch all of this. I've, nev- I've only seen the first Thor and that one. 
and I've heard that I don't need to see anything else. Like, even, oh, wait, no, I've seen Ragnarok. I thought you meant like the newest one. No, no, no. Love no. and Thunder. Okay, yeah, I've seen Ragnarok. What, you mean She-Hulk? Attorney at Law. The what? I'm pretty <laughs> is that, sure is that's that the newest one? I think that's what it is. I, uh, oh, a, I have seen ads for that. She-Hulk. Yeah, I've seen ads uh, yeah. for that. <laughs> She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Just. I, I was joking about the Attorney at Law part, cause, but it, it's like the only thing I saw was the picture of the title card, which is like her holding a briefcase. But. It's actually just like her going to criminals and beating them up when they get away with it. Like Jen through Wal- the law system. Jen Walter's world is turned upside down after a freak accident leaves her with superpowers. However, Jen is hesitant to become a full-time superhero and tries to maintain her life as a lawyer. I mean, makes sense. The law degree is kind of hard to get, so. Hey, editing guy, put some echo on that so that it sounds big and epic. Yeah, intern. Um, let's call him Zuki or her Zuki. <laughs> <laughs> if Zuki starts to edit for us, that'd be a huge help. So thanks, Zuki. That would be. The How did we thing. get here? I think <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned Civil War. That's why. Oh, okay, yeah. so it's my fault. I, I yeah, huh. that makes sense. All right. All roads lead back to you. Honestly, <laughs> we even had haven't had like alcohol too. So it's like I have just started drinking alcohol. So. Right, so it's like, that's not even, this is just natural-born chaos. I mean, I told you I don't have a whole lot of useful information in this episode, because you kind of took the lead on it, but that's my contribution today. <laughs> that totally reminds me of early Gems of History, where we only had one person do any research mm-hmm. and lead the entire topic, and the other two would literally just throw grenades the entire time. Like, I remember, I think it was like Pickett's Charge, when you and Mark were talking about, like, space. Yeah, and we talked about shoes. For like, right, for a long for time. ten minutes. Because one yeah. side was Adidas and Nike, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we had it going on back then. Wow, Civil War. And people think we're not funny. Oh. I don't know if they do or not. I know. Oh, I mean, tell us if we are or not. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. <laughs> um, give us five stars and put whatever you want in the comments. Shoehorning in all of the plugs. All of the plugs. Well, it's either that or we talk about Marvel for some. That is true. A little bit more, but... But no. you know what I marvel at, Evan? The Civil War and how intense and crazy it was. Yes. So as we covered in episode one, um, this Civil War was truly like two entire centuries worth of fighting. It started off as your what we would compare to as states fighting each other. Uh, with local Daimo constantly fighting each other over anything from land disputes to like literally capturing hostages from the other noble families, from demanding alliances through marriage. Everyone was at war. It was a complete free-for-all. Uh, common life, we didn't even touch in the first episode, common life, just being your normal run-of-the-day farmer or tradesman, working a mill something like that was extremely dangerous because bandits i mean there was no law law there was just the local law with sometimes a hundred men trying to do do all the law and order and And you had like other like states next to you coming in at random times just taking your food through the land so you had no idea what your enemy was going to be at some point during the day right i mean it was always new enemies when you went to go when one force went to go capture the castle of another force a third party force would come in and like take a castle like unoccupied castle so it was just constant warfare until 
we reach kind of what we started covering in episode one of this series uh, with the introduction of Oda Nobunaga, uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Um, we left off with Toyotomi Hideyoshi uh, just ending his Korean campaign and having just died, actually. So that's where we're going to pick up today. But definitely uh, check out our episode one of the series. We don't, yeah, don't, don't want like the Spartan series yeah, I don't where people only listen to guys. episode two. Yeah, there's more listens on the second part of the Spartan series than the first. So I don't know what you people are doing out Do there. Do you think someone just listens to that, sh- that episode twice? Maybe. No. I don't know. I can't tell. So yeah. <laughs> I don't have that data in front of me. And so. that person was me. I'm actually if the that's, data. If that's you, then you're a psychopath. Right. I count. No, I hate listening to, <laughs> to my own voice. I know. <laughs> but without any further ado, let's just pick back up to uh, kind of where we left off with. Um, so shortly before the death of Toyotomi Hideyoshi in 1598, he actually entrusted temporary control of Japan to five regents otherwise known as Tairo, uh, who were to rule until his young son, Hideori, who at the time was five, was old enough to succeed him as the you know, heir apparent ruler in Japan, as the future shogunate. However, in very uh, Sengoku Jidai fashion, the most powerful daimo of the time, uh, now that Hideyoshi was dead, Tokugawa Ieyasu, who was... The third general, kind of the other, uh, I guess, second in command to Oda Nobunaga. A.K.A. the luckiest man in Japan. The luckiest man in Japan, absolutely. If you want to know what that means, listen to episode one. But Tokugawa Ieyasu began to you know, kind of, kind of test the waters of this uh, new little power vacuum that was going on by just inquiring to where other loyalties of the other Daimo lay. Uh, he started to arrange political marriages, despite the actual enforcement and the new law that Toyotomi Hideyoshi installed before dying, which actually forbade such marriages. So people were marrying for love, and that's it. I don't know if that's true. No, that is not true. I that love is that almost never true. Across like every country in this time period, in like the 1500s. I don't think there's a single country that doesn't just marry their children off to other people. For oh, like, for like financial gain, territorial gain. Anything, yeah. It's just arranged marriages and nobody's happy. Oh, yeah. Love is not the prime factor at this point. Yeah, it's either inbreeding or arranged marriages. Right, keep the bloodlines pure. Uh, well, looking, looking at you, uh, England. <laughs> they did like to do that a lot. So despite going uh, behind the newly established law of not using political marriages to establish alliances, um, or in addition, I rather should say, uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu also moved into Osaka Castle after one of the other regents died, uh, supposedly to act as the new caregiver for young Hideyori. But he didn't like Hideyori. Nope. (laughs) He was a child. (laughs) I don't think many people liked him. No. The they other... also just liked fighting. So. Yeah, they were like, I haven't used my sword against my neighbor in a while. There are four other guys over here that I could fight. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, the other regents and high-ranking politicians kind of scoffed at Ieyasu's actions, uh, but they did not dare confront him uh, militarily without forming a strong coalition of Toyotomi loyalists. Ishida 
Mitsunari, who was a close friend of Toyotomi Hideyoshi, decided to forge such an alliance to ensure that the young Hideyori would inherit his father's office. So we're already seeing almost immediately after Toyotomi Hideyoshi's death, the formation of a East versus West. And with the West being Tokugawa Ieyasu's force, because his home uh, province of Owari, no, he was from the Imagawa. His home province, which was formerly of the Imagawa clan, was off in the west, and the eastern uh, side of Japan was all forming more around the banners of the Toyotomi. It's Biggie versus Tupac. East versus west. <laughs> oh my god. Literally the same thing. Exactly, exactly the same, thing. yeah. It's like parallel. Yes, history repeats itself. Every, every single time. The two men, uh, Mitsunari and Tokugawa Ieyasu, plotted against each other, securing alliances, offering different warlords rewards for loyalty, sending spies and assassins after each other, and patiently biding their time for the perfect moment when they could finally make the decision to question Japan's true ruler once and for all. Mitsunari's and Iyasu's maneuverings behind the scenes finally came to a head in May of 1600, when Iyasu sent a letter to the daimo Usigi Kakagatsu, demanding to know why he had begun a military buildup in eastern Aizu, which is one of the provinces of northern Japan. From his base of operations in Osaka Castle, Iyasu sent messengers demanding an explanation for Kakagatsu's actions. Infuriated by what he perceived as insolent replies, Iyasu mobilized an army to confront Kagagatsu and marched from Osaka towards Aizu in July of 1600. Which is kind of funny. He's like, I didn't like your one... It's like essentially receiving a one-word text reply. Yeah. And he's like, wait a minute. I'm going to take my army now like, and come beat you up. it was just from the Spartans. You know, they loved one-word replies. So. Oh my goodness. That's I also so just love the fact that he... Got told by the former ruler of Japan, okay, I'm putting you on a council with four other people to make sure that my son gets taken care of so that he can become ruler. And then he's like, got it. Yeah, I'll and then totally immediately do after that. he dies, he's just like, so this is mine. You guys aren't rulers. Yeah. So I'm the most of wealth. Um, by de facto, this country's mine. <laughs> yeah, he never like gives them a chance to even rule with him. <laughs> right. Uh, Iyasu was correct, um, and Kagagatsu was acting in coordination with Mitsunari, who again was forming a Western allegiance to back up Toyotomi. Or, excuse me, Toyotomi's son. Yes. I think he's like five at this yeah, point. He's, yeah, he's five at this point. <laughs> he's just trying to play games. Right, right, right. But they're playing war games. War games. But Mitsunari essentially became the, the leader of this coalition of Daimo and Tairo, loyal to the late Hideyoshi and hostile to the ambitious Ieyasu. Mitsunari actually orchestrated these insults and told Kagegatsu to send these insolent replies, hoping that that would actually lure Ieyasu to the east, and he would actually be able to surround him and destroy his army with Kagegatsu's help. So he was trying to bank on Tokugawa Ieyasu's sometimes rash decision making to maybe, you know, take these replies as insults and then go and basically put himself in a vulnerable position. 
Tokugawa Ieyasu, however, anticipated such actions and sent his trusted generals to prepare to hold Kagegatsu at bay and then set off towards Edo, modern-day Tokyo, at a more leisurely pace with the majority of his army to better prepare himself. So you can kind of see these guys are just using their tactical experience that they've learned over literally their entire lives being at war, whether it's against each other or against um, or in Korea in those campaigns, to better prepare themselves and put themselves in the perfect position. Yeah, because the Yusugi tribe was like one of the biggest clans mm-hmm. around other than the uh, Tokugawa or Tokugawa. Yes. Okay, Tokugawa yeah. tribe. So, yeah, it's literally like the biggest tribe in the east and the bigger tribe in the west. Like, oh, so. totally, totally. Along the way, Tokugawa Ieyasu met with his trusted retainer and general, Tori Mototada, at Fushimi Castle, which was a strategically vital choke point along the Nakasando Road, which Ieyasu knew Mitsunari would target. There, Knowing he would be horribly outnumbered, Motatada swore to sacrifice his own life in defending Fushimi Castle to delay Mitsunari's advance in any way. This leads to one of my favorite stories. So, the small force at Fushimi Castle, which consisted of, oh man, just not nearly as many men that should have been there. (laughs) Going up against an army, an opposing army of 40,000 troops. Very specific numbers. Yes. Where's- but essentially, uh, Tori Motitada, along with his much uh, inferior force, held out for 10 entire days against this army of 40,000 men. They had 2,300. 2,300, yes. Yeah. And so you may be thinking, like, 10 days, that's not nearly as long as the, like, the eco or the ecoiki uh, lasted. Because they last 11 years. <laughs> those, guys, those guys are also awesome. So Right. But it's so important that he held for those 10 days because it actually allowed Tokugawa Ieyasu to get in better position because if they would have just steamrolled right past and let's say it lasted one day, Tokugawa Ieyasu would have been completely surrounded by a superior force at that time. And we would be talking about a completely different Japan yep. right now. Eventually, uh, the opposing forces did take over Fukushima, ca- or excuse me, Fushimi Castle, and Tori Matadada, along with a few of his samurai retainers, committed seppuku. However, uh, this is one of the key points in Japanese history in that, I mean, it truly held off just in time for uh, Tokugawa to better position himself and leading to the Battle of Sekigahara. Just to get away, honestly. Right. <laughs> Right, right. And as we said, the luckiest man in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> and it's truly one of the most famous examples of like that samurai tradition, like that Bushido, where your life is just part of, or excuse me, your loyalty to your lord, your daimo, just as outweighs like your own regard for your own life. Yep. So this is one of those great examples of, of that I- ideology. Yeah, because seppuku isn't necessarily a bad death for someone in this time period it's seen as an honorable death even defeat so i mean that's why oda nobunaga did it that's why yeah all of these guys are doing it it's just um, you'll look, be looked upon more favorably in the afterlife if you do it that way compared to just getting killed in battle right and like surrendering even too. yeah exactly that was the worst <clears throat> is giving yourself up yes you lost 
all honor death then. Death before dishonor. Yes. The two opposing Daimo, so Ieyasu and Mitsunari, soon turned their attention to other strategically vital castles, which guarded the Tokaido and Nakasando roads. So the two main roads, these are the two main roads that go through all of Japan. So consider this like Route 66, you know? Like they're the highways. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and then the cars showed up. And then the cars showed <laughs> Lightning up. Lightning McQueen. Carriage Lightning McQueen. Ciao. <laughs> <laughs> so throughout late September and October, a series of sieges at places like Uida and Otsu castles set the stage for this ultimate confrontation at Sekigahara. Tens of thousands of troops whose support could have changed the course of the battle found themselves cut off from the main body of their respective armies due to these sieges. On October 20th, Iyasu reunited with his split forces uh, when he arrived along the Nakasendo near the Western Army's headquarters at Ogaki Castle. Metsunari sent out a small contingent to test his eastern foe's strength and soon realized that his position in Ogaki Castle was quite precarious. Iyasu held forts on the major roads and could easily ignore Ogaki completely on his way back towards Osaka, or his home base at Sawayama. As night fell that evening, Metsunari consulted his generals for the best way to proceed. Shimazu Yoshihiro suggested a surprise nighttime assault while the Eastern Army slept. However, Mitsunari was instead persuaded by the words of his strategist, Shima Sakan, who said that such an attack would be cowardly and dishonorable, even though Oda Nobunaga used the same tactics. Everyone else has done it, probably. People love a good night attack. I guess. I mean, it works. That's why they love it. Hey, are you doing anything later tonight? Like, do you want to go on a night I attack? Mean, we could set up a night attack. What, should we just take over a city? Should we just really quick... Take over the UP. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful country up there. And has access like, to ports. <laughs> I just feel like night attacks don't work as well anymore because we have so much more access to light. That is true. Thanks, Gen Z. Yeah, thanks light pollution and modern appliances and conveniences. <sighs> you can't... You just can't, can't do, do anything good, these can't days. Can't do a good night siege anymore. Man. Men used to go off to war. Cut to <laughs> us trying to take the UP alone and getting tased by cops. Probably with, like, <laughs> not even a Nerf gun. Probably with, like, a ruler. that This, could... this is our land now. <laughs> so, ignoring the advice of the night attack, Mitsunari decided to withdraw from Ogaki Castle and meet up with Kobeikawa Hideaki, another one of his generals, to the west in order to cut off Iyasu's advance at the key strategic point of Sekigahara. So this is just another example of how Japanese history could have been totally changed if they would have done that night attack. Yeah. Because Tokugawa Ieyasu and his forces just, I mean, they just weren't ready. For, like, they weren't expecting a night attack. So it truly would have been a very similar situation to the Battle of Okahazama, which we covered in the first episode, where we're talking about a completely different Japan. Yeah. <laughs> In 1600, the village of Sekigahara was a small town along the Nakasendo Road. However, it was a vital inland path which connected the east and west parts of the main Japanese island of Honshu. Alongside the Tokaido, which followed a route closer to Honshu's eastern shore, 
The road was one of the most important paths of transportation in the country at the time. And even today, the bullet trains pass over where these old roads once lay. So even in today's standards, they are still quite essential roads. When Ishida Mitsunari withdrew his Western Army from Ogaki Castle on the evening of October 20th, 1600, he knew that his opponent, uh, Tokugawa Iyasu, who was leading the Eastern forces, had little to no choice but to pursue him. Iyasu's objectives, the Hishida headquarters at Sawayama and the city of Osaka, lay at the end of the road. And if he wanted to reach them, he had no choice but to confront this Western army, which was patiently waiting for him at Sekigahara. The Western army consisted of approximately 80,000 men. That's a lot of beef. Which we, <laughs> right? Which in episode one, we thought, or when we talked about the Battle of Okahizama, we thought 25,000 men was insane. Yeah, that had 30,000, or not even 30,000 men total. Right, in that entire battle. Yeah. But yeah, 80,000 men for the Western Army. Unification, and I guess, gives you more people. Really brings the people together. You know? <laughs> that is the name in, of the game. In one way or another. Uh, these men worked tirelessly in the darkness of that late rainy night uh, and took positions around the four hills overlooking the valley along the road that went through Sekigahara. Kobe Akawa Hideaki, who was the 18-year-old veteran of the recent war in Korea, led 15,600 men from his headquarters on the far right flank of the Western Army. Several days before the battle, Hideaki had sent a message to Iyasu saying that when the time came, he would actually turn traitor and join the Eastern Army in return for a reward of massive wealth and land. So the guy that's literally defending the right flank with close to, or with 15,000 men for the Western Army, just said, so what's the, uh, what's the East about? What kind of things we got what's going on? What's the going on? rate for betrayal around here? Right, yeah, he's, hey, gotta play both sides. He's oh. smart. <laughs> he's doing it right, honestly. Right. But hearing rumors of treachery uh, soon before the battle began, Mitsunari, who is the head of the Western Army, who, I mean, he learned that he's about to get betrayed, actually extracted a promise from Hideaki that he would remain loyal to the Western Army and would charge the Tokugawa flank once Mitsunari lit a signal fire and in return would receive great riches, a lot of land, I mean, just more, you know, incentive, if you will. I'd take riches and more land. You know what? I could definitely use some riches and more land right that, now. I don't know about you, but, but... It's been on my Christmas list for years. I still haven't gotten it. Santa just has not delivered more nope. land quite yet. By the dawn of October 21st, neither side knew where Hideaki's true loyalties lay. Least of all, Hideaki himself. So this was one undecisive man. It was a flip a coin decision here. <laughs> right. To Hideaki's left were the forces of Yukida Hide, Otani Yoshitsugo, and Konishi Yukunaga. I love how we said like three episodes ago that it's not a date to name podcast, and it's been a lot of names. These are all generals, yeah. <laughs> and between these three generals, they had 21,000 men between them. 
Mitsunari himself was positioned at the far left flank on the slopes of the local mountain, and was directly across from Hideaki, and with 6,000 men directly under his command. A few, uh, few miles to the east, about 28,000 men of the Mori clan actually stood waiting on a different mountain range, or excuse me, a different hill range, ready to flank the attacking Tokugawa forces. So the western forces are set up very well to attack Tokugawa's eastern forces, truly right in the flank. Like, flank are barely nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Like Hideaki, however, the allegiance of Mori generals were very unclear. So it's like the day of the battle, and roughly 30,000 men of the participating 180, or excuse me, 160, are just, we're going to see how this turns out. So you're saying Mori men, more problems. That was, that was beautiful. That was, <laughs> that was perfect. I had to wait to interject with that one. You were just I, like white-fisting the was table. Like, like, I was doing like the nervous tick thing where you're like scratching at everything you can until you get the chance. I need to do it. I need to say it. I need to say it. I need to say it. this one. By 4.30 a.m., the Western Army had created a wall blocking Ieyasu from following the road, with the two armies having essentially equal numbers, 80,000 men each. The Western Army had the advantage in the, in the terrain and had fortifications built but numbers and terrain are not the only consideration in such battles as these. Iyasu began to pursue Mitsunari at around 2 a.m. on October 21st, setting up his command post on a small hill. His generals then set up a line across the Nakasendo Road, parallel to the western forces in front of them. Iyasu himself directly commanded 30,000 men, around 13,500 others took up positions on the road, just in case the Western Army's Mori forces, who I, whom Iyasu had convinced to already join him, reneged on their promise. So, basically, yes, Mori men, Mori <laughs> problems. One thing I do respect about this battle, though, compared to Hideyoshi, is that they, he actually, like, these guys are leading their troops into battle. It's oh, not yeah. like they're sitting back at the palace and waiting like Hideyoshi did most of the time. He just yeah. makes rules and then doesn't do anything. Yeah, these guys were very boots on the ground. Like, they're in the trenches. Build me a nice palace. <laughs> also, give me your swords. Yes, I don't want anyone else to fight. The Battle of Sekigahara began about 7.30 a.m. on October 21st, 1600. Couldn't even sleep in. That is so early. It's like, it's seven in the morning. Get me my coffee first, please. Right, and my cup of porridge rice. Can I stand while I eat it? Oh, yeah, I think you have to stand while eating yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> okay, good. There was intense rain the previous night, and the morning had been extremely... All of these battles getting ringed on. <laughs> it's like, rain on your battle day. <laughs> <laughs> There's no rain delays for, for battles, I guess. Not quite. No, they couldn't call it due to unfortunate terrain. <laughs> the refs didn't come out and call it, yeah. They just, like, everyone stop. There wasn't lightning. They, there was, they could play through rain. Right. As, I mean, if lightning happened, they had to take a 30-minute delay. They're all holding metal. Yeah, they, st they stood underneath the awning and waited for <laughs> the battle to continue. And that's when they actually became friends. End of story. <laughs> So with this intense rain and the corresponding mist, 
none of the over 150,000 soldiers in the area could see about 100 feet in front of themselves. I can see where this is going, I think. However, once the fog cleared, that's when your 80,000 men strong enemy was just revealed. You're like, probably, they were probably thinking, like, we have to have the numbers advantage. Look at all the guys that we brought along with us. Then the mist cleared. It's like, oh my God. I thought this was going to be one of the situations where the army started fighting themselves because they couldn't see who the enemy, where the enemy right. was. You're just chopping away with your, with your, uh, that's katana. one of the downsides of night sieges. That is true. Very hard to distinguish the banners at that point. Once the fog had cleared, it was actually the Eastern Army who decided to strike first. So Fukushima Masanari was granted the honor of being the first attack, and he began to advance towards the Western lines in a complete cavalry charge. Masanara had been late in a, or he had been a late addition to the Eastern cause. And other generals under Iyasu actually felt like the honor ought to go to someone else. Therefore, Lee Naomosa deceitfully told Masanari that he and 30 men were going on a scouting mission. Masanara's, or excuse me, Naomosa's <laughs> 30 men charged directly into a line of 17,000. They're in the tides of the battle. And this is the first strike, just to like, you know, set the tone. They just wanted to be the first. This is what is Japanese people in this time period want to be wanting to be first in battle, like that almost right? ruined their Korean campaign on the first day. <laughs> yeah, they just love getting out there. Whoever like gets the first head, I guess so. But it's just one of the funny descriptions. Like once they realized they kind of fudged up, they all retreated, turned around, and retreated. However, the sound of thousands of gunshots. <laughs> <laughs> Literally thousands of archivists going off, and like, they were all deleted. It's like a scene from a movie where they go up and like they throw sand in one of the guy's faces while he <laughs> while he's in line, like composed, and he doesn't move, and then he runs back to his line, and all of a sudden you just hear fire, <laughs> pocket sand, everyone. <laughs> so there hadn't been much time for either side to plan out a real like dedicated detailed strategy for the battle because everyone was just constantly on the move so the first few hours of the battle proceeded in what historians call an orderly free-for-all basically eastern forces started the attacks they launched attacks on different lines uh with the corresponding flanks um and once like the hand-to-hand -hand combat people were engaged initially that's when like the gunfire like the ar arquebuses Arquebus. Arquebusiers. Thank you. When, Thank. <laughs> when the guys with the guns that go poo-poo. <laughs> <laughs> the shooters. Yeah, when, yeah, when the shooters come. Uh, they started to do like different flanking maneuvers to get some shots in. But by 10 a.m., in the words of one of the manuscripts, the smoke from the guns had actually blotted out the sunlight. Wow. Because these are very like, they, I mean, these are like literally first edition guns. What is this? The Battle of Thermopylae? Something with like historical writers, they love blotting, this, out, like, the blotting out the sun with this, with different either firearms or bows and arrows. Or... Yeah, just one example of what this like just the absolute brutality of the close quarters combat was of this period uh, comes in rather rather gruesome uh, rather gruesome example here. No, Connie Saizo, uh, which was one, who was one of the officers, uh, fought against a 
different officer Akashi Takanori. Saizo stabbed and slashed his Naginata uh, against Takanori's attempts to block and parry. Saizo finally knocked him to the ground and immediately cut the head off the wounded opponent, which was a traditional custom during this time period for Japanese warriors, aka samurai. And at the end of the battle, all the captured's head would be registered and presented to the leader. By the end of the battle, this one man alone had seized 17 enemy heads. <laughs> he just got him on like his belt. Right, no, that's exactly like once you defeat an enemy, once you have them dead, immediately off with their head as almost like a trophy. Yeah. That's got to weigh you down so much. <laughs> you trust I'm just seeing him like one arm is just like he's trying to carry all these, all these heads. heads. He just keeps dropping them everywhere. He's bashing hold, people wait, with hold, the heads. Hold on, hold on. Give me like five seconds. I just got to pick this up. Okay, now yeah. we can fight. I need to attach it to my belt. <laughs> Talk about accessories. Oh, he was styling profiling. 90 minutes into the battle, Shima Sakan, who advised Mitsunari against the night attack near Ogaki Castle, became one of the first major casualties for the Western forces and basically sent it on a bad or sent a bad omen for the course of the battle. Caught in a valley from eastern matchlocks, he received received gunshot wounds to his chest and elbow and was knocked from his horse. His men quickly carried the wounded general off the battlefield, but his injury dealt a huge blow to morale. To rally his own side, Iyasu actually moved closer uh, to the battle itself. So he was still chilling a little bit in the back uh, to coordinate uh, in his command post, but he moved it up a little bit. Listen, listen, guys. I can't die. Watch this. Just like walking through gunshots. Whoa, 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 whoa. And then elbow, chest, it, off horse. It's broken the slow-mo neck. scene in a movie where everyone's fighting around him and he just slowly walks through fine. <laughs> During this entire time, uh, the Western forces to the east and to, well, excuse me, the two different Western forces, uh, the traitors, if you will, around the East, about 25,000 men, were standing completely idle, even as the different, you know, attack signals were happening. However, none of them dared to fight unless Kikawa Hiori, who had taken position in front of them, actually acted first. So, to put it in a visual perspective, imagine... Th- like three different squares, and these squares represent different like army battalions. There's one in the front and two behind. The one in the front is already committed to portraying the Western forces, while the other two are like, "Let me at them! Let me at them! Let yeah. me at them!" Like they're still all in on the Western forces. Well, and these guys are the ones that are waiting for like that signal fire to be lit, right? These guys are. Yeah. Yes, correct. So he's just like, "I ain't doing shit." <laughs> yeah, I am staying right here. But they wouldn't charge because if they did charge and they were, you know, traitors, then they would just be kind of caught a little Oreo of death there. That sounds like a great metal band. Oreo of death. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Another important general who was conspicuously inactive during the early battle was Kobakaya Hideaki, who we already talked about a little bit. Even after Mitsunari, the main leader for the Western forces, fired the designated signal flares into the sky, and after receiving several messengers up to his post, his forces made no sign of movement, not charging to aid the West or the East. 
Because he had already sworn allegiance to both sides. He's laying in his lounge chair with his sun visor. And he was sweating bullets trying to decide. Because he was, him and his men were just straight up perched up. Talk about making too many deals. Right. It's like, just pick one. They're both tremendous. Over committing. Yeah. By 12 p.m., as the eastern forces continued to advance west from the village... Tokugawa Iyasu knew that he was essentially trapped in the valley. And just like Mitsunari, his opposing general, Iyasu was growing extremely anxious about what Hideaki was going to do. Was he going to turn traitor and join Tokugawa's forces, or was he going to uphold his promise to Mitsunari and attack Tokugawa? Yes. After debating with his consultants, he became Tokugawa. Iyasu became extremely impatient on Hideaki's idleness, and eager for a clear signal, clearer than any flares, Iyasu actually ordered a group of matchlock men to move forward and to fire on Hideaki's men <laughs> located up on the hill. And you'll never believe what happens here. Hideaki made his decision, ordering his men to charge down their strategic location and attack the western forces. <laughs> so he gets shot at by the by east. By the east and, and charges like, at the west. <laughs> All right, I'll fight the I'll fight the other guys. <laughs> so he charges directly into the flank of the western forces with his 15,000 men. With that western with the western forces uh, new flank only consisting of 600 men. So they charge down, they absolutely delete the flank. And Yoshitogu, uh, excuse me, another wrong spot. The Western lines then began to crack under the pressure of being attacked from two sides, and around 1 p.m., Yukita Hide and Konishi Yukinaga fled from the battlefield, who were key generals, fled from the battlefield, seeing no hope of victory at this point. As a Christian, Yukinaga was unable to kill himself, and soon after the battle, he actually turned himself in to Tokugawa Ieyasu. Mitsunari himself fled around 1.30 p.m. Shimasu Yoshihiro and his nephew decided to retreat through the advancing Eastern Army, and on their way out, dozens of samurai made a glorious last stand to hold off their pursuers. The 28,000 Western forces, despite their strength located in that strategic, uh, strategic post in the uh, Eastern Forces kind of rear side there, if you will, had done literally nothing the entire <laughs> battle. This is all due to Kikikawa Haroi uh, turning turncoat and being, again, just in that front spot with the two different <laughs> battalions behind him. And they all just left. <laughs> like oh, 28,000 men just were like, well... I guess we'll just leave. We're not needed here anymore. We'll see ourselves out. At 2.30 p.m., the victorious Tokugawa Ieyasu conducted the head-viewing ceremony. About 30,000 men lay dead. More than four times the number of deaths at the Battle of Gettysburg. That is astonishing. And all of them have no heads for the most part. And all of them, yeah. That's a pretty long head ceremony, that's for sure. Iyasu had crushed the last greatest threat to his rise to power. 
In the years to come, he would be declared shogun by the emperor and would annihilate the last remnants of Toyotomi loyalists, including the now 10-year-old Hideyori himself at the siege of Osaka in 1615. Even as he overlooked the bloody field at Sekigahara, finally victorious, Tokugawa Ieyasu sternly tightened the cords of his helmet as if prepared for more fighting. He said, and I quote, Tighten the strings of your helmets after victory. This is because, after all, you never know what could happen next. But for all intents and purposes, the Battle of Sekigahara marked the end of the long Sengoku period and the beginning of the Edo period. This was marked by 260 years of isolationism. (laughs) Yeah, they definitely went inward. (laughs) Yes, along with some economic and cultural development, and above all, peace and stability, which was in complete sharp contrast to the previous century and a half. This new shogunate, the Tokugawa shogunate, would last all the way until the Meiji Restoration of 1868 which effectively put the imperial court back in control of Japan. And they finally had outside influences again. And then they were like, oh, the West, like, the United States can trade. Yeah. Like, all these European countries are, like, pretty all right. But yeah, 260 years of isolationism after, like, Oda Nobunaga was very welcoming of outsiders, after uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi was very welcoming of outsiders. Then they were like, that's enough of that. We're going to focus on us. We need some me time. Yeah. (laughs) But thus concludes our story, our telling of the Sengoku Jidai. Yeah. Uh, Very important for Japan, I would say. Right. I mean, once it, this death, I mean, their isolationism, uh, though you may be thinking like, why won't they expand their economy? Like a lot of cultural development happened during that time. Um, yeah, a the, lot Edo, of, the Edo period was pretty, like, pretty substantial for Japan's culture. Right. I mean, 260 years, that has a very lasting effect on one's country. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, hope you guys all, all enjoyed it. And I know I definitely did. Love doing the research on it. And definitely has a sweet spot, sweet spot, sweet spot <laughs> in my heart. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of cool figures in this story that could have like their own episodes on their own, just telling about them. But I think it's this way you can get the entire story, and we can kind of hit highlight points for each one here and there, kind of like we did with Oda Nobunaga mm-hmm. and these two, the other two that followed him up and baked and ate the cake. Baked and ate the cake. <laughs> Going back to part shake one. and bake. Yeah. <laughs> But no, sincerely think or hope that you guys guys enjoyed it. And if you want to follow the conversation, just follow us on all of our social medias, which I already read. But uh, but yeah, yeah, I just love that we're doing it all the plugs right away. We're just like, yeah, the end can be the end, right? And now we're done. Now, <laughs> yeah. So if you did listen this far, you get no rewards. <laughs> you don't know where to continue the conversation. <laughs> yeah, they're just like shaking their phones, like tell me where I can find them. But yeah, uh, that wraps up our coverage of the Sengoku Jidai, which is, it was fun. It was I didn't know anything really about like the specifics of this stuff before mm-hmm. we started. I knew the name Oda Nobunaga. I don't know why. 
probably because I read it in a history book sometime. Oh, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've I've read one of those. Da two tree. Yeah, when hosting a history podcast, it'd probably be important to have at least a base. Right, have like at least a couple books in your book stand. One or two. But next week, we will be back with some American tales. Ooh. So, look forward to that. We're going to be talking about some small battles, but they're actually very interesting. Lots of mining. Lots of mining. <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> A big focus. So, you can try and take a guess at what we're covering next time. But, until then... I hope you guys enjoyed this series on the warring states of Japan from the 16th, 17th centuries. And until next time, all you guys out there, mine up some rocks and stay polished. <laughs> that was a bad one. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs>